Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Pastor Alex and his wife Bethany and family are away in Tennessee. He was the greater and a teacher's aide to Dr. Brandt at Southern Seminary, and Dr. Brandt had a big impact on Alex's life, and he passed away this past week. They were at the funeral yesterday. So next week, he will pick up in chapter 4. As you know, we're moving our way through the book of Acts one chapter at a time. Um, and last week, I, I preached from Acts chapter 3. We looked at um, the healing of the lame beggar. And again, Pastor Alex next week will pick up on chapter 4. What I want to do this morning is not move away from that study, but rather um, kind of lean into this morning on the concept of, of healing. Uh, one of the things in the intro last week I mentioned, does God heal? And I answered yes and no. We're going to take a little time this morning to look at healing um, in the Bible, um, certainly because it's very prevalent, I would say, throughout the course of my lifetime, being 63 years old and in Christian television and Christian radio and in, in meetings. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. And I want to uh, read from two verses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this pertaining to the covenant that God made with Moses and God's people, having delivered his people, the nation Israel, from uh, the slavery and bondage of Egypt. And I just want to call our attention to two verses, verse 1 and verse 15. In this particular covenant that God makes, there were stipulations on the people's part that they must respond to. And here is some of the things that that Moses writes here in verse 1 of chapter 28, the book of Deuteronomy. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks once again for this morning where the church, Christ Community Church, in churches throughout our own country and across the globe will meet this day to worship your son Jesus and to celebrate his life, 
death and resurrection for the salvation of their own sin. And we do rejoice that we have found life. We have found the living water, the door to life, which is your son Jesus. We thank you for the book of Acts, and as we continue to learn from it, may we learn of you, and we pray, Lord, that you will build our own congregation in the truth. And dear God, if someone is here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, we pray that they would come to know him to the forgiveness of their sin. And we ask for these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Things are not always what they seem to be. I grew up in Hazel Park, and uh, it was a pretty vibrant community, that little two-mile square city. And it was around age 11 or 12, what we would typically do with the neighborhood kids or, or even meeting up with other neighborhoods um, in the summers, we would go to Beecher Junior High, and uh, on the football field, we, we would either play baseball or play football, and we would make up our own uh, playground games, because typically that's how most of sports was done back then, in an unorganized way. And it it would not be, you know, not like us to not meet and play for four, five, and six hours at a time. And it was on one such day, like I said, I was around 11 or 12 years old, that I, you know, went to Beecher. We were playing baseball. It was either in July or August, uh, just a playground game with, with, with playground and neighborhood friends. And of course, as typically would, would happen, I would come home a, a filthy mess, and as I hit the back door, my mom would say, hey, head to the basement and uh, get those clothes off and we'll get you washed up and, and so on. So I made my way to the basement on this day, and uh, you know, I, I, we didn't have, and typically if we got thirsty, which we obviously we did, we would run across to a neighbor's house and grab a hose and get a drink. Well, I went home that day extremely thirsty, and so knowing the protocol that my mom would send me to the basement, I go to the basement, and there's the washer and the dryer, and my dad had a workbench next to the washer and dryer, and there was this big cur jar that was filled with what I thought was water. So I promptly, being thirsty, grabbed that, took a big swig and said, Oh my, Mom, what in the world is, is in this water? She proceeds to scream, grab a gallon of milk, and just bounces to the basement. And for the next 15 to 20 minutes, I drank a gallon of milk until I had vomited like four or five times. Now, I knew, or at least thought, that that was just uh, some nasty taste in water at the time. Needless to say, it was bleach. And my mom was petrified that I was going to die. So uh, she did, as all good moms do that play doctor and everything else, 
The point being, what I thought was a glass of water really was something that could kill me. Does God heal? As I mentioned last week, the answer to that question, of course, is certainly yes and no, according to the context. And what I meant by saying yes is probably all of us know, and I gave the illustration of one of my best friends who was healed of a softball-sized cancer tumor in his stomach, uh, which the doctors had uh, told him that he had three months to live and uh, would not be able to survive it. And they sewed him up after gone through his surgeries and went back in there about two or three weeks later and it was gone. Certainly, we believe that God heals. We believe that God healed Tammy Ford. And we're thankful that, that Tammy is with us. Tammy uh, was given some very dark news some time ago that she would not survive. God can choose to heal uh, just out of the way, and God certainly can use medicine because we know that all good things come from God's hand. And we've prayed for many in our congregation through the years for such healings. Sometimes that answer is yes, and sometimes that answer is no. But there is a movement under the umbrella of Christianity that really became known, of course, as an American phenomenon on the church called uh, the Word of Faith Movement. And let me just share just a couple of things with you because certainly we're all going to bump into from time to time people who need a physical healing. And again, I would wholeheartedly submit to you that God can and does heal people. Does he do so in the vein as we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Acts? I mean, I would, I would say the answer to that would be no. But the Word of Faith movement, at its essence, believes that the believer has a divine right to health and wealth. Some have called this um, the prosperity gospel. And this movement, just so you know, has no denomination, there's no formal organization, and there's no hierarchy, but they proceed to function in a way to name something and then you can claim it. It's a type of Christian's commanding. Um, their own terminology is the force of faith, meaning this, that Jesus will respond to the force of one's act of faith. And, and I would submit this to you. I think this has been one of the most horrible, cruel, um, false gospels uh, of my lifetime. I uh, taught in a Christian school for five years. 
and uh, dealt with a young man who, because what accompanies this, this whole uh, name it and claim it thing was um, uh, certain types of practice of gifts and under certain elements of the church, if you're unable to practice those gifts, um, they would say you're not a Christian. He was a young man who was in ninth grade. He was in uh, our system, our high school system for basketball, and he earnestly desired to, quote-unquote, speak in tongues, believing because of the church he was in, uh, had taught him if he didn't, he, he would not, he was not a Christian. And it was one of my first experiences where I had to deal with this, something like this up close and very, you know, I basically saw him for five days during the week and he was earnestly doing it and, and couldn't come up with it and was petrified that in fact he, he didn't know Jesus. Um, and, and I would tell you this as we kind of look at this this morning that two of the reasons why this is horribly cruel, the prosperity gospel, uh, stems to two things. The one that I just shared with you is one is someone is unable to express a strong enough faith. So they begin to doubt if they have faith at all. Now what's closely tied to that is God's love then because through the force of my faith God doesn't respond to what I want, then I doubt God's genuine love for me. That, friends, is horrible. It's horrible theology and it's not biblical. And, and so we can't help but all have been somewhat um, affected by the movement of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Now, we're dealing with this, obviously, in the context, because last week we saw that from birth, God heals through the apostle Peter and John. It was Jesus, of course, himself that did this healing. Someone whose feet and ankles were withered. And he gives them life and he restores them life. And of course, as they trust in Jesus of Nazareth, not only did he re receive a physical health, he more importantly had received a, a spiritual health. But part of the dynamic of the prosperity gospel falls to the two verses that I just read to you from in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 and verse 15. Whereas under the old covenant, and this covenant that God makes with Moses to God's people, there was blessing if you obeyed fully. Health, multiple children, long life, flocks, meaning, you know, cows and goats and herds, which are a source of materialism, right? That, was, that defined one's wealth in biblical days, it's, it's found in an abundance of corn and grapes. There was a prosperity and health that was attached in the stipulations and the covenant that God made with Moses and to God's people. Well, what also comes with this, as we think, see in verse 15, are some curses. 
There's a cursing upon those who are unfaithful. It's sickness. The womb is barren. There could be disease in drought, in famine. There was a loss of flocks or herds. And of course, as a result of this, ultimately, there was the enemy's occupation of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, God promised to Israel to free them from all of the diseases that were a part of, of Egypt. And so it's, it's, it's a misappropriation of what took place under that covenant, which centers on what we know today to be the health and wealth gospel. Time and time again, in the Old Testament though, we know Israel fell. They forsook the Lord and ultimately, they would, they would find themselves in uh, captivity. And as a result of that, those things took place because they were unfaithful to Yahweh. Now, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. As any proper interpretation of the Bible, you're trying to find the context in which it was set in, and it's most important that you do note the covenant that was in play at the time for the simple sake to understand why God was saying what he was saying in relationship to his covenant people. But we know that Jesus comes in the Gospels, and it is Christ himself who fulfills the Old Covenant. He fulfills the covenant that God made with Moses and to God's people. Because as we see in verse 17, Jesus in the greatest sermon that was ever preached on the face of the earth says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the true Israelite that was always faithful to his father. He always obeyed his father. He never forsook his father's will. Jesus obeyed the father's will to his death. So Jesus fulfills the stipulations that were made in the covenant that God makes with Moses back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 uh, and, and other spots. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom through his ministry on the earth and the healing that we generally referred to last week uh, where he's going about and he's healing people from sickness and disease, signifies that in Jesus, the curse of sin is reversed. Let's flip back to chapter 4, when we see Jesus begin his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, when Jesus opens up his ministry, you find this in Mark chapter 1 as well, corresponding it says this and he went through all Galilee 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom. The kingdom currently on the earth, militant, is found in the church, triumphant. Jesus is reigning in heaven and over the earth until he returns. We are living an already existence, but it's not yet because it will be consummated when Jesus returns. And in his earthly ministry, as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he is healing every disease, every affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, every last one, without fail. That's Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is merciful and kind. That's why he came to the earth, was to save. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus the Christ fulfills the covenant that God made with Moses. And He offers Himself as our great High Priest. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews. Jesus Truly God and truly man understands our conditions. But before I read this text, just think about this. You think about what many of you have experienced in our own congregation in a physical way over the last five years. Some in our midst, right, they were a part of our congregation, went on to be with Jesus. Some of you are sitting here and still enduring a physical, perhaps, type of pain, but you're continuing on as you follow after Jesus. I want you to hear these words. Jesus is merciful to us, and Jesus is kind. Verse 17, Therefore He made Him to be like His brothers in every respect. There's nothing apart of what you endure physically that Jesus did not endure. He understands. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't bring a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. That word propitiation means he satisfied God's holiness. So he is, he is faithful. He understands the circumstances that we find ourselves in. The condition that we find ourselves in. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. And certainly people, when they fall sick, I've 
you know, witness this. And, and, and certainly there's a great temptation for myself. When you fall sick, you begin to want to give up. You get tempted to sin. Man, Jesus knows what that was. And he faithfully endured right through it. He fulfilled everything necessary. He sympathizes with us in our own weaknesses and sin. And so, as we're going on through the book of Acts, we see that the apostles carry out Christ's mission. Jesus himself healed. They go out. And basically for about 35 years to the destruction by and large of the temple in 70 AD, they carry out the physical mission. And, and I would submit this to you. I think one large reason was to authenticate the gospel message. Because we know the New Testament was being written by the apostles at this time who had been, as an apostle, instructed visibly by the resurrected Christ. As you begin to go more forward in the New Testament, the gifts begin to fade. And again, as I say to you, what we will see in the book of Acts largely takes place for about 35 years. But even then, it wasn't as if in their ministry that it began to fade some even then, even though they were healing, that Jesus was healing. Not like Jesus, because we know clearly that everybody doesn't get healed. Now, as you begin to contemplate and you begin to wonder, I, certainly the first thing I would want you to know, don't doubt that you're not practicing enough faith. And please, by, please, by God's grace, don't ever doubt that God doesn't love you. God could not love you, church, more than he loves you. And it doesn't matter the condition of your life. Rather than seeing God as a genie, we want to see him as sovereign. And that God sometimes can act by his own divine pleasure to heal those and to raise some of those people up. But let's look at a couple of things to kind of further explain and put away the falsehood of the prosperity gospel. Not all sickness and disease was healed. Let me give you a few examples. We won't turn there, but you can note this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says he leaves Trophimus sick in Miletus. Why would he do that? Trophimus was a dear fellow laborer in the gospel. Yet he leaves him sick. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, many scholars believe that Paul's ailment was an eye disease, where he says he has this thorn in the flesh, and elsewhere, when he's writing epistles, he'll respond either by utilizing Luke, as he does in Acts, or another, you'll see how large a hand I write with, because he clearly had 
a, a disease in the eye, whether or not specifically that's what he's referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we don't know for sure. But once again, I, I, I would say this to you, many believe that was his disease. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we know that, that Timothy gets sick regularly. He has, you know, what you would simply call a, a sick stomach. He's unable to snap it. And so Paul tells him to use a little wine. Well, why doesn't Paul just heal Timothy? Because not all sickness and disease were healed. So we move away from maybe some of these things that are found in the New Testament, and I want to give you just three things to consider when you, each of us, experience sickness or disease. Turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think it's important because we all believe that God is sovereign over every element in our lives, that no matter what's going on in our lives, because we want to pursue and follow the will of God, if, if we're under a disease or something, we need to ask ourselves, because I think the Bible gives us three responses as, as Christians. And I think anytime we fall into one of these categories, they basically are going to make up for us as Christians, you know, why do Christians get sick? Here's the first one, okay? We simply get sick and we ultimately die because we live in a fallen world, right? The wages of sin is death. And so this, this kind of goes to two sides, where Jesus will say, it rains on the just and the unjust. That is, God in his common grace is good to all men. And so they'll receive, even the unredeemed, some blessing. And certainly God blesses, um, uh, you know, the church, God's people. But also, because we live in a fallen world, I know that I'm going to die. Why? Because it's clear People are dying all around me. Someone dies on this globe every seven seconds. Man, that should be enough to believe that the Bible is true. Because the Bible is the only thing that discusses what life is about. So number one, why do Christians get sick? Well, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes things just happen because we live in a world that doesn't function as the new world will when Jesus comes and makes everything new, when there will be no more disease and there will be no more sickness. So we live in a fallen world, number one. Number two, and I think sometimes this is, you know, negated because it, it it kind of scares people. Sometimes Christian gets, Christians get sick because they willfully will unrepent. Look at the text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 28, this is in light of, of, 
of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, he gives this instruction, let a person examine himself then, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. He's talking, of course, about the body and blood of Jesus. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, anyone who carelessly just looks at the Eucharist to their own consumption and do not consider their own lives in, in light of that examination to confess and make right, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is, if you're plotting and planning sin, you don't want to take the table. Now, the table is not for sinless people because nobody would be taking the table. But the table is for me to consider my life and walk and am I categorizing or compartmentalizing a closet in my life that Jesus doesn't invade or I won't permit it and I persist in a willful, unrepentant sin. That's why he says this. Look at verse 30. That is why there are many of you who are weak and ill and some have died. I think there's a better translation. Some have fallen asleep because Christians don't truly die. They do die. They pass from this life. But the point being is Paul is addressing Christians that you can live in an unrepentant, willful way that brings sickness and disease upon yourself. So number one, we get sick, we get disease, and we die because we live in a fallen world and we're sinners. Secondly, sometimes, in fact, because a Christian persists in willful, unrepentant sin, God will bring sickness, yes, even death. Thirdly, this, this is an, another thing, and I think we should always no matter what condition we find ourselves in, in, in relationship um, to, to disease and sickness, we should consider why are we experiencing this as we relate with Jesus. But the third thing I would say comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and, and sometimes that God permits sickness or disease to come our way, to humble us away, so that we will lean into His grace to draw us closer to Him. And so if you're a Christian and you experience sickness and disease, I would certainly encourage you to evaluate those three areas. Okay? Now as we go to a final thing with this, I want you to turn to... Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And let me encourage each of you now. Christ has healed you of the eternal wound of sin. And that one day, that eternal wound of sin is going to bring you into a resurrected life 
where there will be no more disease. There will be no more sickness. The death and sickness and everything that befalls us in this life will be done away. It will be a part of the former life. Because man's greatest need, friends, is not physical, but a spiritual healing. This morning, as our elder Andrew Loganow read from Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel describes in an allegory of an aborted fetus where Yahweh breathes into him and gives her life. It is a picture, that allegory, in that Christ saves his people. Christ is the one who heals us of the eternal wound of sin because he himself was wounded on our behalf. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Church, you will never pay for your sin for all eternity. Never. Christ has paid it. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus himself, the Christ, he bore our iniquity. Yahweh gave life to that aborted fetus in that salvific allegory message. Christ heals the eternal wound of sin. And so as you're sitting there in consideration of, of your own life, you must wrestle, each of us, with the gospel. And God will hold each of us responsible on the final day as to what we did with the message of the gospel. Because each of us were born in sin. Each of us deserve the punishment of death and judgment because we are guilty as sinners. Yet Christ alone can heal your soul. Take Him by faith. And faith has three elements attached to it. The knowledge, the assent, and you must trust. The knowledge is that God is holy and that you in fact are a sinner and you cannot save yourselves. And the only person that bridges the gap between a holy God and your own sin is the man, Christ Jesus, who took the blows that Isaiah describes in chapter 53. 
You must have the knowledge. And without the knowledge of the gospel, no one can be saved. You must have the knowledge of the components of the gospel. And then secondly, you must assent to them in your mind that they are true. That what the Bible says about God and His holiness is true. That what the Bible says about me in my sinfulness is true. That what the Bible says about Jesus being the Christ and the only way and the truth and the life, He is the only way that you can be made right with God. By His life, His death, and His resurrection. You must have the knowledge of the Gospel. You must assent in your mind intellectually that those things are true. But don't miss this. Ultimately, you must trust in Jesus alone to save you. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made to salvation. Private religion is a lie. Anyone who has ever been saved by Christ is going to vocalize it. And it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. The confession that has saved your soul in and, and, and lies within you will come out. That's how you know someone has truly trusted in Christ alone to save them. This morning, please take Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's not the force of our faith, but it is the object of our faith that we are trusting in Jesus' power to save through His sinless life, through His substitutionary payment for our death so that our sin could be forgiven as He rose from the dead if we would place our faith in Christ alone. We at our church here pray that that certainly is the heart in prayer for everyone that's in this building. I pray, God, that you will move within their heart and you would bring them life. Just as you told Ezekiel as he preached that text, you told that fetus to live, and it lives. Lord, you told us to live, and we were brought to life in an acknowledgement of our sin. We cried out to you, Lord Jesus, would you save me? And you are faithful to save those who call upon you. You will in no wise cast them out. Bless your people now, Lord, as they partake in this Eucharist Thanksgiving meal. May they know that you could not love them more than you already do. So bless them now in the strength of that truth. We ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Church, you may rise and go receive the elements.